We're looking at benedictions and prayers and doxologies from Scripture. And today we have St. Paul's benediction to the church at Thessalonica. It's found at the very end of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5. Hear now the word of the Lord in this benediction. May now the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As most of you know, the book of 1 Thessalonians is probably one of the first documents of New Testament literature ever written. One of the early epistles of Paul. And he has a similar benediction in the second uh, letter to the Thessalonians. Instead of saying the God of peace, he says the Lord of peace in that particular benediction. This is a, a benediction upon the people of God, but it comes from a rich background of all of scriptural literature. The God of peace is the one who gives shalom. Shalom is wholeness. W-H-O-L, wholeness, health, prosperity, well-being, everything working in order. There's a sense in which peace is the goal of the recreation of God. Man was created by God in a state that reflected the image of God, and everything was good and in order. And then sin distorted, twisted, ruined, polluted everything, especially that person, that one who had been created in the image of God, all the things that God created in nature, all the things he had created in the animals and in the plants and in the heavens, the stars, everything. None of that was in the image of God. Only Adam, only man was in the image of God. And somehow sin has infected and affected every bit of the human nature. That's why when the God of peace, the God of shalom, wants to restore all things, he must do something. He must first recreate and restore. He must adjudicate and he must purge and cleanse the human. And that's what God does in salvation. As the passage says, he who calls you, it starts with the call of God, the effectual call of God upon a soul, bringing them out of that sinful condition and bringing them into a place where they are now a new cre creature in Christ. It is 
pronouncing upon them a verdict of righteousness to justify them, not on their own merits, for they have none, but on the merits of Christ who substituted for them and paid the penalty and brought the sentence of not guilty. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So there had to be a justification. And then a sanctification. A sanctification is that work, as we saw in our catechism, of God's sovereign grace, whereby he begins to change us change us little by little moment by moment it's a progressive work it takes place over time in fact it may take place over a lifetime in fact it may be a good while before you ever (laughs) see a lot of fruit of it in some instances it's overnight it's instantaneous the lord causes us to more and more put off sin and put on righteousness That's sanctification. That's God's work in us. And we work alongside God in that. There's a yielding. There's an obedience. There's a discipline. There's a lot of effort on our part. It's a synergistic work. God working by His Spirit within us and we giving it all we have and yet He affecting it and making it happen. And the Scripture tells us that, as Pete alluded to out of 1 Peter, here Paul says that the Lord is faithful He will do it. He will accomplish it. Now that ought to just give us some real joy right there to know that the Lord has started a good work in us and he's working on us. I remember a few years ago that popular thing, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me. (laughs) Well, that's that's kind of the, the idea. God's working on us. He's changing us. But it's a wholesale change. By that I mean it includes the whole nature of the human heart. Unfortunately, and I won't dwell on it too much, but I think we need to correct and rebuke sometimes. We have two or three, at least two prominent false teachings in the church that use this text as a proof text of what they believe. One of them is a notion that we can be sinlessly perfect. This passage is talking about the Lord Him peace sanctify you completely. And some have read that to mean that you can go on to be entirely sanctified and reach some state of sinless perfection. We are talking about whole, W-H-O-L, whole holiness, but it's not whole in the sense of perf- perfect holiness in this life. It is the sense in which the whole person is being sanctified. We are being sanctified in our entirety. It is the whole self that is involved in it. And that gives rise, of course, to the the second notion that is a false notion. And that's the idea that, as as Paul says here, your whole spirit and soul and body And some have said that that is the nature of man. Man is tripart. He's three parts. He's body, he's soul, and spirit. I remember reading that in the notes of the Schofield Bible when I got my Bible in the second grade and started studying and reading the notes probably more than I read the text in those days studying. And they put that forth. But I'm here to tell you that your whole soul, your whole self 
is not simply tripart that can easily be distinguished and different effects upon those parts, but we are in fact a whole being, a psychosomatic unity. It may be too early, it may be summertime, it may not be a good time to lecture, but I'm going to depart for just a moment and give you a few things that might be helpful to you. Can I teach for a moment? The Bible has an anthropology, it has a psychology, it tells us about the humanoid, the human being, that which God had created and that which God created in the image, and then the image is marred and in Christ the image is restored. As Paul says, his desire is that Christ be formed in you. That's restoring the image of God in you as you become more like Christ, who is himself, of course, the very Son of God. And there, the Bible is rich in complexity, really, about the, the Andre, the man, the anthropos, the human being. And let me just give you just a sketch of the, of the words that'll help be little conveyors, I think, of meaning for us. There are eight, at least eight terms in the New Testament, in the Greek language, that tell us something about the person, the, the, the human being. The first one is, appears in this text, it's the word suke, or the word soul. We get our word psychology, of course, from that. And that essentially is the life principle within us. It's the whole being, and often referred to. Another word that's used in our text is the word soma. That's the body. It's almost always used of the human body, the flesh and the bone, the vital organs. That's the soma. It is neutral as to being moral or not. The ancient Greeks thought there was a problem. Some people think that the body itself is, and flesh itself is that which is inherently evil. But the scriptures don't seem to push us in that direction. It is redeemable. There is the word sarx, which is the word for flesh. And it refers, of course, to the entire organism, roughly synonymous to the word soma or body. But it is that uh, part of our humanity. It's often that, that which is referred to as the physical descent. In other words, the, the, the birth process and all of that is part of the, the understanding of the sarx. But the sarx, the flesh, also has a connotation of its sinful. And sometimes the, the flesh, since it's the, the arena in the, of the operation of our sin, we, we behave in our flesh, we behave according to our fleshly instincts and fleshly lusts. And so sometimes you'll see that word sarks or flesh used in a negative way. And it's contrasted quite often with the spirit, which is the third word that's used here, the pneuma. The spirit is that which animates us. It is our personality. The scriptures are not comfortable telling us that that spirit is disembodied. That's why we have a physical resurrection, a resurrection of the body is because that life principle within us needs to be embodied. 
And it is that spirit that animates and enlivens the soma. There are a couple of other words that are helpful. One is splunknon. That's a good word. I can barely pronounce it. The splunknon. I still haven't gotten it right. It's the entrails, your innards, your viscera, your bowels. It refers to the seat of the emotions and the affection. Uh, sometimes they're referred to when it comes time to think of compassion or pity, the bowels of compassion. We have that part of our being. Many of us live as that being the dominant part of our whole person. There's also the soon endysis. That's the conscience. It's that which makes us aware. That which gives us a sense of right and wrong. That which causes us to concentrate and give attention. It's a, it's a thinking apparatus. But it's connected to the emotions. And then the word probably that we've looked at the most is the word cardia, heart. The heart is that whole principle of life. You do everything with your heart, according to the New Testament. You think in your heart. You feel in your heart. You choose in your heart. It is the thinking apparatus of the, of the whole being, the feeling apparatus, the emotional and the volitional, the choosing. It is a good catch-all word. And when you talk about the heart, you're talking about the real essence of a person. We spent a lot of time this past spring looking at King David, and we talked about how the Lord looks upon the heart. And we talked about a heart for the Lord and having a David's heart when it was sinful and when it was broken and when it was restored. There's still another word that helps us understand kind of a biblical psychology. And you can see how these are, are fluid and, and overlap and, and there's not uh, a clear demarcation. And yet there is an identification of each of these parts of our soul that make us up. There's the noose, the mind. It is the intellectual center. It's where we have our conceptional capacity, our reason, our rational capacity. It's where our imagination is. It's in our noose. It's in our, it's in our mind. There's not going to be a quiz over those eight terms because I don't think I defined them well enough to give you a quiz. I wanted to show you the overlap and the fluidity. The notion that man is tripart is oversimplistic. We are a psychosomatic unity. It's hard to imagine the spiritual without the physical. In fact, the Bible speaks of the parts of man as being material and immaterial. A material sarx, a material soma, a material splanchnon, but an immaterial part of our being. A soul, a spirit. 
The Old Testament gives us even more. There's about five words in the Hebrew that cover the same ground, and I'll briefly go over them because it's the same ground. It's the word nephesh, which is the physical body, the viscera, but it really is a word describing the living soul, the entire being, body, soul, spirit, mind, everything you can imagine. In fact, it's that word where it says God breathed into his nostrils and Adam became a living nephesh, a soul, a living being. There's the word ish, which speaks of man, really man in his humanity, man in his personhood, humanity as somebody. There's the ruach, which is roughly equivalent to the pneuma of the Greek. That's the, the breath, the wind, the spirit, the breeze, the life principle. God is pure spirit, and man has a spirit as part of his being. There is the bashar. It is roughly equivalent to the sarks. It's the, it's the flesh. Uh, it often refers to man in the flesh as he is in his reproductive capacity. But it speaks sometimes of man in his frailty. He's just Bashar. All flesh is grass, transient, a breath here and then gone. And then finally there is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the lev, the heart. It refers, of course, to the organ itself, but it, it is man in his inner self, in his vital force. It's, his, it's the word heart, very much equivalent to the word cardia. But it's his man's nature, man's personality. So when Paul says we need to be sanctified wholly, completely, entirely. He means our whole human self, everything. The spirit has to be revitalized, the soul reconstituted, the body resurrected. That's what our salvation is. It's God taking us from where we are in our sinfulness, in our deadness, in our coldness, in our lifelessness, in our corruption. We've got a mind, oh yes, but the noose, I always think of noodle when I think of noose, <laughs> the brain, it doesn't think right. The understanding is darkened, needs to be enlightened, eyes need to be opened in order for us to come to know and please God. The flesh, the arena of sin, the theater of sin is not without its effects. The appetites, the appetites of the body which are healthy in every way. Every appetite we have is a healthy, life-giving, reproducing, productive appetite. We have to have our appetites, but my goodness, how corrupt can they be by sin? Just think of two appetites. I'll let you think of the two I'm thinking of. What kind of sin 
do we find ourselves in in those two appetites? Gluttony and immorality. Our body, with all of its appetites, needs somehow to be sanctified. The word sanctified, as I've mentioned in this pulpit probably a hundred times, has basically at its root the idea of cut and cleanse. Cut means you cut out of a herd. You've been called, Scripture says it, that's what it is. You're just, you've been cut like a little calf out of the herd by a quarter horse. You've been separated, isolated, marked out by God for a destiny. you're separated but you need some more work done on you need to be cleansed you need to be purified you need to be washed in the blood of the lamb and that's what the Lord does in the atonement of Christ and God's at work in us he's at work in us to change us and to change us completely and he is doing it Uh, isn't he? And I guess that's the question this morning is, do you see the Lord working on you? Now, as I close, let me tell you how he works on you. <laughs> He's got to refine you, so he puts you in the fire. You realize when you're in the fire, that's when you're being sanctified? I remember about 12 or 14 years ago, one of the ladies that works for me on the staff was, was just really had some troubles in her life and some issues and she was going over all that with me and, and it was all serious stuff and I was thinking of ways that I could pray for her and help her and counsel her and finally I just looked at her and I said, you know, what you've described to me is your sanctification. <laughs> what you're going through is what the Lord has brought upon your life to purify you. He's put you in the fire. Sometimes you've got some rough around the edges. So the Lord has to pick you up like the stone, the living stone that you are and take the old trowel and the old pick and knock off the rough edges. And each blow hurts. But he's crafting you into a living stone that will fit with millions of other living stones into a perfect building which is a habitation of God, the temple that is the church of the living God. Your sanctification is God at work in you. And as I close, let me just suggest that you learn to cooperate with God, to work with Him on the process. That involves a lot of introspection, some prayer, maybe a little fasting, some discipline, some use of the means of grace, some attendance upon the Word of God, some interaction with mentors and teachers. It also, I'll say finally, is you just have to kind of get a vision for that. You have to realize that that flat tire and that delayed appointment is part of God's providential plan. You're all upset because you're delayed seven minutes on your trip north on Central Expressway. 
But what you find out about 30 minutes later is there was a horrible wreck right up ahead. And if you'd have been on time, you might have been in it. And countless other things like that in your life. That's the difference between a spiritual person and the unspiritual. The spiritual person sees the hand of God. By faith, you can see God at work in your life and in life of others. And so you, you get on board with that. You embrace that. You say, okay, Heavenly Father, this is the way you chasten those that you really love. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And this scourges every child that's his. That's our sanctification. And Paul's prayer here in this benediction is that the Lord do it. And he says he's faithful. Here's the assurance. He will surely do it. 